Uh, welcome to today's event. It's kind of a special event today in that we really have three groups coming together to, uh, to, to make this happen. And so I want to thank the Celebrating Diversity Task Group, the Democracy Commitment, and the GASP, GASP Student Club uh, for working together um, to bring this topic together and to reach out to Dr. McCauley uh, for the event. So uh, Dr. Jeffrey McCauley uh, is a faculty member in anthropology and sociology. Jeffrey is a leader on our campus and um, taking us down the path, especially connecting with LGBTQ <laughs> issues, but a whole range of topics. And so I'm always grateful um, when he comes and gives his time and offers um, his words of wisdom. So with that, I will turn it over to Jeffrey. Thank you. Thank you, Troy. Hey, everybody. Can you hear me all right? OK, cool. So I'm Jeffrey. I go by they. And today we'll be talking about Fired Up About Getting Fired, Workplace Discrimination Against the LGBTQ Plus Community. I have to send out some mad props to my friend Amanda Mesero for coming up with the title. I'm the most boring person in the world when it comes up with like naming things. Um, so she came up with this awesome title. So um, thank you to Amanda. OK, so here we go. Uh, I'll just give a sort of a brief primer about the history of workplace discrimination and the Supreme Court case. And if you just follow me along for this little adventure, maybe we'll all figure some stuff out together. Uh, so to start with, uh, if you ever apply for a job, um, oftentimes with that job application, they'll say something like, we do not discriminate on the basis of age, race, gender, national origin, Vietnam veteran status. And they list off all these categories. And there are, there are a bunch of categories that are protected um, at the federal level in terms of workplace discrimination. And those categories are sex, race, religion, national origin, age, pregnancy, familial status, disability status, veteran status, and genetic information. So the one that we're going to be talking about today, that I'm going to be talking about today, is about sex and how that's been um, understood and how the definition of sex has changed across time to include other groups and not include other groups. So that's where we're going to go today. So to start with, um, we'll think about the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is an office in the federal government that um, interprets and enforces Title VII's <coughs> prohibition of workplace discrimination. And this office, uh, called the EEOC, have you heard of EEOC? Uh, the EEOC specifically does include sexual orientation and gender identity within the definition of sex. And it gets to be a little bit tricky about how, uh, how sexual orientation and gender identity get included into sex. So let's just think here for a second. We'll do a little thought exercise. A lot of times people think that the word sex means the gender that was assigned to a person at birth. That's what sex is. Uh, that's a really specific, limited definition of what sex means. So when some offices say that they don't discriminate against based off of sex, that's what they specifically mean. I don't discriminate on the basis of one's gender that was assigned at birth. But if you think about it, uh, gender assigned at birth has incredible implications for how we think about gender identity and sexual orientation. So if an office says, I don't discriminate based off of gender assigned at birth, well then by default I can't discriminate on sexual orientation or gender identity, and here's why. Um, imagine a situation where we'll think about uh, sexual orientation. So if a woman, uh, a person who's assigned female at birth, is allowed to be sexually attracted to men and have a heterosexual sexual orientation, that's cool. 
Um, if a woman has a sexual orientation towards other women, it would be a violation of sex-based discrimination because we're saying that anybody who has a gender assigned as female at birth cannot be attracted to other women. So it still does focus on the issue of what is the gender that's assigned at birth. Same thing with gender identity. Um, if a place says, well, you can only, uh, we, don't, we don't hire transgender people here, well, that's still a violation of uh, workplace discrimination law that has to do with the gender that is assigned at birth. Because you're essentially saying then, if we use the instance of a transgender woman, well, we don't hire people who identify as women who were assigned male at birth. We only um, hire women who identified as, who were assigned female at birth. So it still ties in with the definition of gender that was assigned at birth. So, that, so if you think about it that way, it does include sexual orientation and gender identity, and that is how the EEOC interprets uh, this aspect of the Title VII uh, Anti-Discrimination uh, Act. But across time, different organizations and different offices in different states have interpreted, interpreted it differently, so we've got ourselves in a big mess here. So let me just show you a quick math that shows you how much this mess can be. So if we look across the country, depending on where you are, there are different rights that are protected for some groups and not for other groups. So the dark purple, uh, if you look in Illinois, y'all know where Illinois is? Uh, dark purple, uh, in, in the states that are dark purple, sexual orientation and gender identity are included in the, in the non-discrimination policy. Uh, so therefore, uh, uh, an employer cannot refuse to hire someone on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation. Uh, they get in trouble for that um, if they refuse to hire someone or if they fired someone because of that. Uh, but then it varies, that's not most states with the dark purple. If we look at the light purple, sexual orientation discrimination is prohibited in, in public and private employment, but gender identity is only prohibited in public employment, which means that the government isn't going to discriminate when they hire in terms of gender identity, but private corporations still could. Uh, and then from there, it just kind of gets worse in terms of what protections are offered in terms of public employment or private employment until eventually we get to the gray states, and the gray states, there's no protections whatsoever. So if you live in Texas, for instance, um, you know, if your boss finds out that you're a lesbian, the boss could literally say, I'm firing you because you're a lesbian. We don't like lesbians here, so you're fired bec because you're a lesbian. That is the reason I'm going to fire you. And that's totally legal in Texas. There'd be no, like, there'd be no legal recourse against that. Same thing for gender identity. Um, if you were in Idaho, if you identify as a trans man, uh, and the workplace says, oh, we don't hire trans men here, so you're fired, that's totally legal in Idaho. So what we can see is that the states have like this big mismatch across all the states in terms of what, uh, what the rules are, and it's not consistent across all the states. What often happens is once enough states start to do the same thing, then we start to see the federal government come through and say, okay, we're just gonna do everything that way. That's what happened with, um, with gay marriage eventually. Uh, once enough states do it, then there's just enough of a movement to keep the process going. So that's just a little bit about uh, where the states are right now. Uh, tomorrow, which is the whole point of today's event, is tomorrow the Supreme Court is gonna begin hearing um, oral arguments for three cases that involve gender identity and sexual orientation identity in terms of workplace uh, discrimination. So that is going to begin tomorrow. I have no idea how long that case is gonna go or how long they're gonna hear arguments or anything like that, but tomorrow it's gonna start. Uh, so I'm gonna talk about those cases at the end of today's presentation, but between now and then, I just wanna give a little bit of a history of the legislative attempts that have been um, put forth to try to prevent this discrimination from happening. 
And there have been lots of little, little pieces here and there um, across a long range of time. But I think the beginning of the modern sort of movement started in 1974. And this is Bella Asberg here. Um, so in collaboration with the National Gay Task Force, she introduced the Equality Act of 1974. And it was a federal bill that, um, that banned discrimination against lesbians, gay men, unmarried people, women, uh, in housing and public accommodations. And she got a lot of support for it, um, but not enough. So it really didn't go anywhere. Uh, she, you know, each year she tried to bring it back again and it, nothing really happened with it. Uh, fast forward a couple years to 1977, and then we get Miami-Dade County, Miami County uh, Florida. So in 1977, this county passed an, an amendment barring discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And they thought it was just, it was just like a really simple wording that it wouldn't cause any sorts of problems. And uh, it did cause some problems. People got really upset with that, primarily a person called Anita Bryant. If anybody's ever heard of Anita Bryant, I see some people very excited about Anita Bryant in the audience, my friend. Um, so Anita Bryant is a former model and singer, and she was a spokesperson for the Florida Orange Juice conglomerate of companies. Uh, so she used her position as being a sort of a household name to really go out there and talk about the evils of this Miami-Dade County um, Board Commission amendment about uh, workplace discrimination. And uh, she, she made this basically a, a big deal. And she created this organization called uh, Save Our Children and basically tried to get this conversation started to undo this uh, amendment that was passed in Miami-Dade County, Florida. Uh, specifically, she focused on firing gay teachers and having, um, firing any sort of person who identified as gay who would have any interaction with children. And her whole thing was uh, that people aren't born gay, they have to be recruited to be gay, and since gay people can't have their own kids, um, gay people like to apparently go into schools and other sorts of places and uh, recruit the children to be gay um, because gay people can't have their own kids. But interestingly, of all the gay people I know, they were made by straight people, so it's just interesting. Um, <laughs> Interesting how we can think about how that happens. And so then due to her work uh, and having like a national spotlight because of her career, uh, Miami-Dade County, Florida did wind up um, undoing their amendment. Um, but she got a whole lot of backlash. There was a big orange juice boycott that happened in the 70s and um, she was fired that from that position and filed bankruptcy and she doesn't really like to talk about this anymore. She's still with us. Uh, through the 1980s though, the 1980s there was a big halt on really any sort of legislative attempts to do anything, and that was because HIV AIDS comes on the scene. So anyone who would have been active in you know, any sort of workplace discrimination organizations or any sort of activist organizations, either one, started working towards trying to get funding for HIV AIDS, or died. So like there was not a whole lot of activism in this front that happened in the 1980s because an entire generation of, specifically gay men in this field, an entire generation of gay men died due to this disease. In the 1980s, somewhere around like 20,000 gay men died of HIV AIDS, um, just in maybe like the first half of that decade. So a whole lot of that activism power went to raising money for HIV AIDS research, caring for people who are living with HIV AIDS and who are dying from it, or the people who were doing that work themselves died. Uh, so. Um, nothing really, everything could just kind of stalled there. Then we get to the 1990s, and uh, we get here Bill Clinton. 
Bill Clinton is often thought of as the first black president. Has anybody ever heard that? Bill Clinton, the first black president? Um, people sometimes say Bill Clinton's the first gay president uh, uh, because Bill Clinton has such a wonderful track record with um, black folks and with gay folks. But I think that people who say these sorts of things aren't familiar with history um, <laughs> because Bill Clinton did a whole lot of terrible things uh, in terms of criminal justice that definitely um, decimated racial and ethnic minority communities. And he also did a whole bunch of stuff that uh, was terrible for queer communities. So in 1993, um, President Clinton passed uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So prior to Don't Ask, Don't Tell, anybody could serve in the military and there was, uh, if you had problems with it, that was, that was one thing, but there was no barrier to actually being in the military. There was no legal barrier preventing someone from being in the military. Um, and then Clinton comes along and he signs Don't Ask, No Tell, which is the specific policy that, yeah, you can be in the military, but you can't be out. If you come out, then we're going to have to um, discharge you from the military, and it's not one of those good discharges. Uh, so he comes along and does Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and that's devastating for a lot of people who feel the need to be in the military. Incidentally, a couple years later, um, Bill Clinton signed into law the Defense of Marriage Act, um, which defined marriage as being between one man and one woman. So we have to think about the legacy of Bill Clinton. Uh, when Hillary Clinton was running for president, she was talking about the legacy that her husband had, and a lot of people who were activists at the time were like, <laughs> are we looking at the same legacy because there's a whole lot going on here that you're not talking about? Um, but that's another story for another day. So uh, let's just go to 1994 then and they get um, this guy called Jerry Studs. And for lots of other problems with him in his career, which we're not going to go into, um, he was the first openly gay member of Congress and he introduced what's called ENDA. ENDA is the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. So he introduced this in 1994, which basically says, you know, you can't fire somebody or refuse to hire someone um, because of their sexual orientation. Um, he introduced it in 1994 um, and had a whole lot of support for it uh, and it didn't go anywhere. In 1995, transgender activists said, why don't you include gender identity in here too? Um, so from the very beginning, people who were uh, in support of transgender rights uh, were, were saying, hey, this needs to be included in here as well, but it wasn't included. And uh, ENDA was actually, or excuse me, uh, ENDA didn't actually include gender identity until 2009. So 15 years after it was initially brought to Congress, only then, only then did they eventually bother to add uh, gender identity uh, into, the non into the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. So like I said, ENDA came about in 1994, and it's been introduced to every single Congress since then, except for the 109th Congress, which was 2005-2007, so um, the Congress, Congress goes every two years, right? Uh, so every single Congress since 1994, except for that one, has introduced ENDA, and then since 2009 has had gender identity as part of the clause in there, and it's failed every single time. Um, to, to pass this through, through both the House and the Senate to get on the President's desk to sign. So it's been introduced every single time ex since, since 1994, except for that one um, Congress, the 109th Congress, which was a Republican-led Congress when George W. Bush was president. So it's, if we think about how politics work and um, conservative parties and whatnot, it's no surprise there. So the question is, why is this so hard to pass? Um, if this has been going on, if, if attempts have been started since like 1974, and if it's been brought up to Congress like every single year uh, since the early 90s, why is this so hard to pass? Well, there's lots of different reasons why it's hard to pass. We could look at some specific people that are making it hard to pass, and we could look at some specific organizations that are um, making it hard to pass. So one of the people that's making it hard to pass is Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump's been very, I tried to find the most flattering picture I could. Um, I opted not to use the picture where he was mocking the person with a disability, so 
Um, Donald Trump has been very outspoken in not supporting this. When we get to the Supreme Court case later, um, he's been very explicit that the Supreme Court should rule against the parties that are um, putting forth the lawsuits. And even though Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed by Obama, so that way uh, the gays can be in the military and do military things, um, Donald Trump has been very explicit in preventing transgender people from participating in the military. Um, so if we're thinking about the military as a workplace, which it, I mean, it's kind of, you, know, you get paid, right? Um, so if we think about the military as a workplace, Donald Trump has been very explicit um, with regard to discrimination against transgender folks participating in the workplace. So there's people, there are uh, what we call moral entrepreneurs in sociology class um, who have been active in trying to prevent this from happening. But we could also look at uh, corporations as social actors. So one example of this is Chick-fil-A. Uh, Chick-fil-A is a, a chicken restaurant, I'm guessing, uh, that uh, has been very explicit in, in promoting anti-gay, anti-LGBTQ plus causes. Uh, gay no Chick-fil-A is notorious for having gay employees being afraid to come out um, because if they come out, they worry about being fired. Uh, the company donates lots of money to anti-gay uh, organizations, including the Salvation Army, which we'll get to in just a second. Um, trigger warning for the next slide for those people who are offended by obscene language, intimidation, and harassment. Uh, the college did have a resource fair earlier this semester uh, where we had resources available for students who identify as LGBTQ+. Uh, here's where you go to fill out your chosen name form and other sorts of things. And at the same time that this resource fair was happening, Chick-fil-A was actually passing out uh, free sandwiches on campus. So it's a, an incredible degree of ironic planning that both of these two events would happen on our campus at the same time. Okay, um, so Chick-fil-A is one example of a corporation that has uh, issues like this. Oberweiss is another example. Of course, they too were also on campus that day. Uh, so we could look at organizations, we could also look at, the, at religions as well. Um, the Salvation Army, which I mentioned a second ago, um, has long supported um, legislation that would deny employment uh, protections against LGBTQ plus people. Uh, so this is maybe something to think about when they start ringing their bells later this year outside the grocery store. So the Salvation Army is an example. Another example is the Catholic Church. The United Conference of Catholic Bishops um, opposes ENDA, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. Um, so I'm just wondering what percentage of the collection plate goes to ensuring LGBTQ plus discrimination and what percentage of the collection plate goes to defend priests who rape children. Um, but that's, again, another conversation for another day. So lots of things going on, um, different social actors trying to prevent this from happening, uh, employment non-discrimination in the workplace against LGBTQ plus uh, people. Uh, there's been a whole lot of back and forth, but the question is, where are we now? So there's a whole lot of, there's been a lot of movement, a lot of back and forth vis-a-vis -vis legislative attempts to end LGBTQ plus discrimination. Uh, some people are hopeful that this will change with the upcoming Supreme Court case. Uh, it's actually three cases, like I said, and like I said, that those cases are going to begin tomorrow. So I'll just do a quick, um, quick second about what each of those court cases are and, uh, and start to wrap it up a little bit. So the first case is Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia. So here's a guy who was working as a, that's him. Uh, here's a guy who was working as a child welfare services coordinator for the juvenile court, and he worked there for about a decade. Uh, he had you know, wonderful job evaluations from the supervisors and all these sorts of things. Um, he, he directed award-winning programs, um, received lots of good performance reviews, all that sort of stuff, like looked really good on paper. Um, and then he joined uh, Atlanta, the Atlanta area's uh, gay softball league. 
the Hotlanta Softball League, I guess is what it's called. Um, so he joined this gay softball league thinking like, oh, that'd be a fun thing to do on the weekends. And then the workplace found out that he had joined the softball league and he was promptly fired then. Um, so it was his contention then that he was fired because he came out as gay, even though he said he never really, he was never really in the closet, but when the employers found out that he was gay, um, that's when he got fired after he joined that softball league. So he went to court and he won the court case and then the, all this back and forth and appeal and all that sort of stuff. And it's eventually worked its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. That's the first case. The second case is Don Zarda um, versus Altitude Express. So he was a guy who worked at those um, jump out of the airplane, skydiving uh, sort of places. So he would, I'm not sure if anybody's ever done skydiving before, um, but if you've done skydiving, you don't do it alone, you do it in tandem. They basically hook you onto someone else who is a trained professional uh, who knows how to do skydiving, I guess. So this guy was the guy you get hooked onto. So he, he worked for the company, you get hooked onto him, and then you skydive together and he does kind of all the work in terms of positioning you or whatever. Well, anyway, uh, when he was hooking himself up to a female customer, um, you, I mean, you're very close to the person as you're getting hooked up to that person. Uh, you're like physically locked together and I don't know how it all works, but you're locked to the person. And he reassured the f a female customer that she didn't have to worry about him being locked up too close behind her because he was gay anyway. Um, like she's like, oh, he's like, oh, whatever, I'm gay. You don't, like, you don't gotta worry about me being the guy who's locked up behind you. Um, and then, so that was basically him coming out of the workplace and he was then promptly fired uh, so from that job. So again, he says that he was fired because he came out. Uh, unfortunately, he died in an accident, but his estate is continuing the litigation. So it's the same thing. It's gone back and forth in court a whole bunch and eventually now it's made its way up to the Supreme Court. Then the third case is the case of Amy Stevens. So Amy Stevens is a transgender woman who worked at Fair, uh, Harris Funeral Homes, and uh, she was a funeral director. And uh, she transitioned from um, living her life as a male to living her life as female publicly. And after she transitioned, the funeral home fired her. So she said, well, that's a pretty big coincidence that I've worked here for all this time, and I've always had good evaluations and whatnot. And now all of a sudden when I um, transition publicly, now is when I get fired. So then she started the lawsuit, and again, it's gone back and forth a hundred times, and now it is up to the level of the Supreme Court. So those are the three cases that are um, going to be heard in the Supreme Court starting tomorrow. Um, I can't help but to notice that all the people who are there are white. Uh, you, we have to recognize the intersection of race and class and all of this, and who has the economic capital to be able to hire a lawyer to start one of these lawsuits and whatnot. Um, so there's a whole lot of situation that goes along with that. Who knows um, how outcomes would be different. Similarly with, uh, with, um, with the repeal of DOMA and the passage of the gay marriage, that was another Supreme Court case that involved incredibly wealthy white women. So it's not a coincidence that it's usually the rich white people um, who courts are the ones that are likely to work favor, in favor of in our criminal injustice system. Um, with all that taken together, we have to think about um, what I think is another, another issue that's maybe a larger issue, and that is the issue of at-will employment. So all of this essentially doesn't matter if we think about the concept of at-will employment. So at-will employment means basically that, that your employment is at will, at, at the will of the employer. So employers could hire and fire people regardless of really any reason. Uh, you could fire someone and say, we don't need you anymore. Like, we don't need you anymore, so we're gonna fire you. Um, 
so it doesn't, as long as they don't fire you based off of one of the protected categories, um, but like, they're not gonna say that's the reason anyway, right? They're not gonna say we're firing you because you're Latinx, we'll say we're firing you because we don't need you anymore, then they can't get in trouble for firing you because you're Latinx, but they still maybe fired you because you're Latinx. So what is the difference of adding gender identity and sexual orientation when companies can still fire at will anyway? Um, so that's just something to think about. Um, interestingly, Montana is the only state that doesn't have at-will employment. Um, it's a little bit complicated. They have at-will employment during your introductory probationary period. So when you're first starting uh, the job, they have at-will employment, which means they could fire you. Yeah, it's not really working out. We, turns out we don't need you after all, um, so we're gonna go ahead and let you go. But once, in, in Montana, this is the only state where this is a thing, um, once you're done with the probationary, probationary period, if the employer wants to fire you, they have to have just cause. They have to be able to demonstrate that you're not effectively doing your job. Um, but in every other state and um, territory and district of the United States, um, there is at-will employment, which means the employer does not need to have just cause to fire you. They could just fire you for any reason anyway. So maybe it's the pessimist in me, which is 100% of me. Um, what, is it, what does it matter if we, if we pass another protection when, employer, when employers can work around these protections anyway through um, at-will employment? I wish I had more to say about this, but the case doesn't really start until tomorrow. Um, so it's something for us to think about. Like Sometimes it's nice to know about things ahead of time. Um, so maybe with a little bit of this background, um, when they start hearing or arguments tomorrow, if you hear something in the news, maybe we have a little bit more of a foundation of the history there. Um, so I guess what I'd like to see is if there are any questions. And Dr. Swanson is gonna walk around with a microphone because they're gonna record this, so that way the questions get part of the recording too. So if you have a question, raise your hand, and Troy will come around and pass you the microphone. We got a question over here. Do you know if all the cases are gonna be tied together or are they gonna rule separately? I don't know that. I have no idea if they're gonna rule together. I know that they're hearing the arguments together. And I imagine their conversation will be together because they've done packaged, you know, t together before. But they might rule in favor of gender identity and not sexual orientation. Who knows? I don't know. Good question. We'll find out. Maybe we'll find out. Hi. Thank you for that great presentation. Thank you. Um, so we just talked about diversity in the world of work in my career planning class, mm -hmm. and we talked about. Um, questions that employers should not and cannot ask you during an interview. Um, what recommendations would you suggest if um, students are going on an interview and they suspect that the interview committee or the hiring committee is asking them questions um, that they're legally not supposed to? How could or should uh, we respond in these situations? That's a super tough one. Uh, in an ideal world, if I wasn't dependent on that employment for my health care and, and whatever else, if I'm at an interview where somebody's asking me questions like this, that might be a pretty big indicator that maybe I don't want to work at that place, you know, so I'm going to go somewhere else. But I know that so many of us have to take whatever job we can get. Uh, so in that, in that case, which is the world we're living in, it gets real tricky. In terms of gender, uh, the classic advice is always given that men... Uh, should not wear a wedding ring and women should wear a wedding ring. Have you heard this advice? Um, this, is, this is like the gender advice that's given. Men should wear a wedding ring to the job interview because that shows that they're like 
they're settled down and they're not like some wild thing or whatever. Um, I have no idea if this is good advice or not, but this is like the conventional wisdom that's given. And that women shouldn't wear a wedding ring because that's a pretty big indicator that you know, she, as soon as she gets hired here, she's gonna start having kids and she's gonna demand all these FMLA and like workplace protections, these sorts of things. So that's a common advice that's, that's often given in terms of gender. I have no idea if that's sound advice. Um, I have no idea. I, I think what's, it's tricky because since there are no protections, they can't really get in trouble for asking those questions because those because they're not protected categories in terms of gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, I don't I don't I don't have advice in that situation. The best advice I could come up with is to talk to a trained professional in this regard, which would be Tamima Faruqi, who is in charge of the Job Resource Center. Uh, she's over there, and uh, and uh, Tamima helps people navigate the interview process all the time. And I'm sure that there's a ton of resources in the. Tamima, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, this, this is a tricky one, but um, one of the things I suggest is that sometimes they're just ignorant in terms of how they're phrasing a question, and you can gauge what it might mean. I mean, I had it in my interview here. Someone after the interview asked me, what are you? So I'm a person. Hi. <laughs> um, so I, I looked at their intention, so I was comfortable in it that eventually I made some jokes but I, I would ask a question back I would take control of the interview and revert back and ask a question I'm sorry how do you mean by that and how does this you know connect to the fact that I can really contribute to your organization with a B and C skills and just bring it back to skills and just keep it very business like but I agree do your research first before you even apply somewhere do I want to work at a place that has a historical issue. Um, so I hope that helps. Thank you, Samila. So you were much more diplomatic, I think. Um, I also was not exactly sure how to advise my students, but one of the things I said was, um, you know, t turn it back on them in terms of the question, and then perhaps say, I'm not really sure how this, um, how this really matters in the context of you know the position I'm applying for. So it is a tough one, right? Especially when, like you said, you know this might be an opportunity that you're reliant on for income and mm. you know all the other benefits that come along with it. But both responses were super helpful. Thank you. I would just say for students, go talk to Tamima, and for employees, go talk to Charmaine Sevier. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if Charmaine wants to say anything, but um, that would be a wonderful resource for employee. Another question. There's some great resources also um, on our MD Connect site. So if you go there, we have some um, resources dedicated to issues like this um, that connect you to organizations that are far more qualified to address some of these things too, that just talk about know your rights, um, what people can and cannot answer based on state and even municipalities. So. Yeah, there are two areas of MB Connect I would send students. One is the Job Resource Center, and one is the LGBTQ Resource Center, um, which is housed within the Student Life Department. And there's a whole page there about what questions, how to respond, and suggested advice there. So both of those two sites on MB Connect would be great starting places. For those of us who may not be Supreme Court um, knowledgeable, wat watchers, so if they argue the case tomorrow, that doesn't mean that they will have a ruling on the case tomorrow, right? They will not have a ruling on the so case tomorrow. So probably in spring, right? 
Yeah, it, it's, it depends on how long, I mean, like with any court case, you know, it could be fast, it could be slow. Uh, so we really don't know what the time frame will be on it. Other questions? All right, well, thank you everyone for coming. Please thank do uh, make sure to fill out the green, oh, thank you.